Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I guess it's time to admit it. Summer's over, silly season is done, it's the fall, it's getting dark a little bit earlier out there, which is okay by me, because it kind of lends a cool tone to the House of Krauss, a little pall over the House of Krauss. The shadows get a little deeper, you almost expect Nosferuto to poke his pointy little head out from around a corner at any time. It's like we had a German expressionist home decorator come in and redo the place. It's cool around here and it's kind of put me in the frame of mind to revisit some interviews with some very cool people that have called in over the last little while. So we have Joe Hill coming up a little bit later on. Now, his real name is Joseph King. He is the son of Stephen King, but he's so much more than that. He doesn't live in the shadow of having a father who's one of the great American writers, even though Joe Hill himself is an American author and comic book writer. Uh, he has three novels, Heart Shaped Box, uh, Horns, uh, there's a collection of short stories called 20th Century Ghosts. He is someone who has distinguished himself and put himself through the quality of his writing right up there in the ranks of the great American genre writers. His stuff is fascinating. Today, we're gonna to talk about the film adaptation of Horns. It was made into a movie starring Daniel Radcliffe, and we'll talk about his frame of mind when he wrote that book and the creative process that led him to it. It's a really fascinating conversation with a guy who's not only a great novelist, but also a great conversationalist. You'll wanna hear that one. First up, though, I wanna to talk to George A. Romero. George A. Romero is a name that any horror fan knows, that any film fan knows. Probably his best known movie is Night of the Living Dead, but he's made a dozen or more movies since then, and he's talked about zombies a lot over the last little while. He's the one who kind of created the modern day idea of what a zombie is. Without him, there'd be no Walking Dead. Without him, there wouldn't be any of the zombie movies that are currently uh, clogging up multiplexes all over the place. He is a visionary director. We talk about zombies a little bit. We get to it, of course, because he is the king of the zombies, but we also start at a much different place. We talk about a movie that he loves. We talk about a movie that influenced him. And I think that title might surprise you a little bit. Here's my conversation with George A. Romero. I wanted to start by asking you about a movie called The Tales of Hoffman. Yeah, okay. And this is a Michael Powell movie, and I heard that as a kid uh, that you'd rent like a 16-millimeter copy almost every week. Is there any truth to that? Yes, it wasn't every week. It was whenever I could save enough allowance, though, to go. You know, in those days, you had to, if you wanted to have a film on your dining room wall, you had to go rent not only the print, but a projector. So it was... Uh, you know, it was quite an investment for a kid that was making, you know, a quarter a week or whatever. But, uh, no, I did. I loved it. I, I went, I was dragged kicking and screaming to see it by an aunt and uncle who said, you know, I wanted to go see the new Tarzan, the new Lex Parker, to see how he stacked up against Weissmuller. And they said, no, we're going to see this. And I fell in love with it. First of all, it's a fantasy film. Have you seen it? I haven't. This is why I'm asking. I've not, I love Peeping Tom. There's a number of his movies that I love, but I've not seen this one. Oh, man, it's just beautiful. It, 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 I mean, it's completely captivating. It's all sung. It's all opera. It's not like the Red Shoes where there's a story running through it and then, you know, Leonid Messine does a ballet at the end. But this is uh, uh, purely the opera. 
with a, a couple of additional pieces of music that uh, were done because I think Powell was squeezing Norma Shearer at the time. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, it's the movie that made me want to make movies. I mean, it's it, I, I just fell in love with it from the pop. And you could see he did it on a low budget. You could see the techniques that he was using. He was... You know, reversing action, doing overprints, double exposures, and uh, it, it seemed accessible. I mean, I think at, at that age, if I had seen Jurassic Park, I would have said, forget about it. You know, I don't know how to do this dinosaur thing. But I could see uh, how it was done, and it, it made it accessible to me, and it made me think that hmm, maybe someday I could do something like this. So were you watching it or were you studying it? Uh, I, I was a little of both. Uh, a little of both. I mean, I, I'm listen, I'm, I'm a sucker for, you know, I, old movies that I loved as a kid. I put them on and, you know, I got a tear in my eye when the overture starts. Yeah. Uh, um, and that, I think, is just connection. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like the marching band in a parade going by. Um, but... Uh, I was studying it and watching it. I, I mean, I would. I, I, it's a movie that I still love. I still watch often. Um, I had a. I had a chance to do a commentary track on the Criterion release, and um, Michael was just. He was my man. I mean, he was really my man. I got to meet him one time. Uh, he, you know, he married uh, Selma Schumacher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's yeah. trying to have his films reissued and restored and things now to yeah. keep his legacy alive. Well, she's been talking about that forever, but I don't know what the market, you know, I hope I hope it works out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Black you... Narcissus, boy, I haven't seen it. And actually, there's not a really complete, really great print of Hoffman. There are a couple of arias that are cut out, and I don't even know if this stuff exists anymore. Right. But... Well... No, I wonder when you met Michael Powell. I'll I'll, I'll get to you to your new film. Don't, don't like, worry about it. But when you when you met Michael Powell, um, you must have people coming to you all the time and saying your films inspired me to become a filmmaker. Did you do that to him? And and do you understand what it's like when people come to you now? Did it make you? Did 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 your uh, I, interaction with him sort of inform interactions later that you have with people? Uh, I think that it. I I hope that it did. Uh, my problem is that most of the people that I meet, meet that say they want to make movies, uh, today, all the, I go to these horror conventions, uh, you know, whether it's through Morgue or wherever, I travel all around the world doing these horror conventions. I get, every time I go, at least a dozen films from young, aspiring filmmakers. They're all zombie movies. <laughs> I keep saying, no, man. <laughs> Do, you know, write about your town, do something about your dad, do some, you know, because most of them are just, it's all about the gore, you know, and so I have a little bit of a problem with people who say that they're emulating my films, and there's nothing underli underlying or informing their films. It's all just about the catch-up, you know, and... and um, uh, so I have a little bit of a hard time with it. I mean, when I met Michael, I mean, we were, I was able to, first of all, talk about several of his other films, and I was much more interested in technique and in, uh, and in what inspired him and, you know, all of that. Where most of the stuff that I get is, you know, I want to make zombie movies just like you. And I made one. Here, look at it. So, and it's usually disappointing. 
<laughs> well, I guess they, what they don't understand is that, you know, the, the first movie, in all the movies, but I'm, I'm thinking of the inspiration for the first movie, it was all about the subtext in that movie. It was about the Vietnam War. It was about all sorts of things. Yeah. You know, anti-consumerism is something you've touched on time after time. You know, it, it, it's about that. The zombies are just kind of the vessel, I guess, by which you tell the story. Exactly. No, I just bring the zombies out of a closet when I have something I want to talk about with her. But no, it, that's exactly right. And it's so hard to tell people that. I mean, you know, I think most of the most of the people in the audience are either there to just take the ride or, um, you know, watch the gore, chuckle at the gore, uh, whatever, and, and not don't particularly care. I, I shouldn't say that because I've been very lucky in terms of people, um, journalists uh, like yourself, that who recognize what you just said. And, you know, that's very gratifying. But by and large, I don't think the public uh, particularly cares about that. And, and it's very disappointing that more people that are working in fantasy today don't don't use it as a metaphor, you know? I mean, it's just sort of, uh, and some of that may be uh, Hollywood, you know, saying, well, we don't need any of that. What we want is the, the shock and, uh, you know, those values that sell tickets. Well, I think as but, long as you and Guillermo del Toro and a few others, Terry Gilliam, keep making films that use fantasy and, and speculative fiction and that sort of thing as a metaphor, that we'll be doing okay. Well, thank you for saying that. Thank you for including me with those boys. Guillermo's my man. I mean, he's my man today. I mean, he's he's uh, sort of, uh, you know, running a close second to Michael in my mind. He's right. a great guy. He's also a great guy. I he mean, is. He's just a great guy. Now, when you're writing something like Survival of the Dead, there are... It, from the first film on, uh, there's been more, I don't want to say comedy, but there's been more humorous elements added into the film, but they are still very much satire. And when you write something like that, I wonder, it, do you still feel the sort of pangs of anger that you would have in the from the early days, from your work in the early days, or are you sort of concentrating on the more humorous aspects, or is it a mix of both? I... I <clears throat> It's certainly not the same kind of anger. I mean, we were when we made that film, we were children of the 60s. Uh, the big thing that everyone talks about about Night of the Living Dead is the racial stuff. That was almost accident. I mean, Dwayne Jones was the best actor from among our friends, and we thought we were being very hip by not changing the script right. when we uh, had an African-American that was going to play the lead. Um, but the, some of the anger in that film, the stuff against family, the stuff against um, yeah, uh, establishment, uh, the whole, uh, I, I don't think you can ever get that back. And so starting with the second film, which I, I resisted making uh, a second film for, for years, 10 years, because people started to write about Night of the Living Dead like it was important American cinema. <laughs> and I said, oi, what am I going to do now? Uh, and uh, I socially knew the people that were developing this big shopping mall near Pittsburgh. It was the first one that any of us had ever seen, big indoor shopping mall. I went out to visit before it had opened. The trucks were rolling in with everything that, you know, the American heart could desire. And uh, I said, okay, here's an idea. And from that point on, I, I said, wow, wow. 
I can have fun with this. I can have fun with the genre and still say a little something or at least uh, express my opinion. And from that point, I, I started to, and it was only really from that point that I, I, I started to insist uh, to myself that the movies had to be about something. Right, right. Now, for the new film, Survival of the Dead, how did you come up with the family feud aspect of it? And is it getting, uh, are the scenarios coming to you as easily as perhaps they once did? Or do you ever find the, the genre limiting in any way? I don't find it limiting. In fact, I find it uh, wildly welcoming. Right. You know, it's like you can I can pull the zombies out of the closet and, and make a movie about anything I want to make it about. Uh, it, it's uh, no, it's been terrific that way. This film, uh, uh, long story. I'm sorry. Uh, we made a we made Diary of the Dead, the last one, on so little money that despite. Uh, the fact that it had a limited release, it wound up making a fortune. So everybody said, okay, we want another one. So my idea was, well, how about this? And this would be more fun for us, the filmmakers, uh, Adam and the production designer, Arv, and everybody. Uh, how about if we do three? What if, this, what if we make another one and it makes a lot of money? You're going to want another one. So I, I, I made notes on three different story ideas. All of them... Uh, revolving around minor characters from Diary. And and uh, I don't know if this is ever going to happen or not. It may not. It depends on how much money survival makes. But I, I'd love to do it. I'm, 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 I'm also finding myself able to use characters because we have ownership in this, whereas the first four films are owned and controlled by different people. So I can cross-collateralize and use characters and plot points and everything else. Uh, in in other films, so uh, you know it all sort of came together that way. When I uh, faced with having to do another one, I said, "Okay, I'm I don't have anything to write about right now, so I'll write about the the most universal thing that I can, which is the idea of wars that develop and people forget what started them, but we're enemies and." You know, I said that could be the, anything from Northern Ireland to Middle East to the U.S. Senate. Uh, and so I made it about a much more generic thing, theme. And uh, that's where that came from. And the moment I started to write it and I developed these two old feuding characters, I happened coincidentally to watch on... Um, Turner classic movies, uh, uh, an old William Wyler Western called The Big Country. And I said, oh, man, wouldn't it be great fun to emulate this? So I had the DP and the production designer and everybody come over and we watched that movie and said, let's do this. And if we make another one, if uh, maybe we'll do it noir. And if we make another one, maybe we'll do it, you know, I don't know, whatever. I love that. That's Young, screwball comedy. Yeah. So... Um, you know, it's hard to say when the ideas hit you, but they just hit you, and that's what it's all about. Really, what do you need to know about author Joe Hill? Well, the least interesting thing about him, I think, is that his father is Stephen King. He is an author and a comic book writer in his own right. Books like Heart-Shaped Box, Horns, 20th Century Ghosts, uh, comic books like Lock and Key, that's Lock with an E 
and key uh, have established him as someone to look to, someone to look to maybe, I don't know, as literally the next Stephen King, a genre writer who comes up with interesting twists on stories and themes that maybe we think we knew all about going in. He's a writer that will keep you turning the pages and I think a conversationalist that'll keep you listening. Our conversation starts with me asking him about writing the book, Horns. So when you were writing the uh, original novel version of this, was there a, a question in your head about uh, delivering a sort of a balance between the darker elements, the uh, religious element, the, the humor, all that? Or, or do you just let the story kind of flow and figure out the details later? Yeah, the book is a really unhappy, paranoid novel by a really unhappy, paranoid man. Um, I wasn't in a great place mentally when I wrote it. And, you know, like I'm, you know, it makes me nuts. You hear these indie rock groups, you know, where someone will say, I don't know how anyone can enjoy that album. I was in so much emotional pain when I wrote it. You know, and I always kind of want to slap a guy like that up the head, upside the head, you know. I mean, it's a rock album, you know. I mean, of course people are going to want to dance. Um but I sort of get it a little bit. I, I'm very proud of Horns. I think it's a really fun novel. I mean, that's a strange thing to say about it, but I think it's a really fun novel. Um, but it was hard to write, and I was a hard person to, to be around and not very happy with myself. And I had had this tremendous success with Heart Shaped Box. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I fell into that cliche, the second novel trap, where I, you know, when I wrote 400 pages of a, a novel that I threw away. Wow. Um, it was called The Surrealist Glass, and it just didn't work. It was no good. Although, in some ways, The Surrealist Glass was the first rough draft of Horn, because there were ideas and elements, and, and even one or two chapters that were almost lifted wholesale from The Surrealist Glass right. and swatted into horns. Um, was that a learning um, experience for you? Taking something that you work on at 400 pages, that's a substantial amount of work to, to, to say, you know what, enough, I'm walking away from it. Do you learn something from that? Um, well, I, yes, but I think, I mean, you know, at some point, at some point, following up Heart Shaped Box, at some point, you know, a year or two after Heart Shaped Box came out and I was, you know, looking at the Surrealist Glass and thinking what a terrible wreck it was, I thought to myself very clearly, you know, I don't care if I never have another novel, right. but I don't want to publish a piece of junk just to be published. You know, I, I don't care if I have to, you know, I don't care if I can't complete my contract and I have to give money back. I, I don't care where we go. If there's going to be a second book, it's going to be a second book I love. Right. It's not going to be a second book that I think is a mess, you know, that's just a contract filler. Um, and... I actually think that was a helpful decision for me, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it gave me a chance to get a little quiet inside, um, you know, to kind of stand back and say, well, everything I'm doing is terrible. I'm just going to stop doing things for a little bit. Um, and I took a little time mentally. Um, and then one day the devil walked into my life. Um, in in and, what sense? Well, just just that just that you know, I I had had ideas that I that wouldn't gel, right? Um, and you know, the surrealist glass, it wouldn't gel. But there were some characters and ideas there that were interesting, but it just felt like not good. It just felt like not a book people would enjoy reading. Right. And then and and it seemed to me it then you know after I took a little time off, 
it seemed to me the thing the book had been missing was the devil. You know, that maybe you don't have a story until the devil walks on stage. Right. Um, you need a character who's planted in the middle of the story who will tempt people and threaten them and frighten them a little bit and, um, and cause them to take action, to scurry about to defend themselves or... Um, you know, to beg, bar- to beg or bargain their way out of the trouble that the devil represents. I think of other stories, other uh, movies and, and books that feature the devil, and often the devil doesn't appear. There's a, a great Ken Russell movie called The Devils, and mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. No. If you haven't, find it. You'll love it. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it's the story of, uh, of, a, of a priest who was accused of being uh, possessed by the devil in France in 1632. It's based on a true story. And the idea of uh, the devil doesn't actually appear anywhere, but the idea of the devil is very much um, a character in the, in the film, even though there is no one character that you could say, that's the devil. Just the ideas that come along with the idea of the devil. Yeah. Well, the the best scene in the movie, I think, is the scene where Ig Ig and and his beloved Marin break up in a diner. I think it's a very emotionally intense scene. And there's this moment when he he says to her, he believes she's seeing someone else. And he says to her, you know, how far has it gone? I want to know everything. You know, tell me everything. Um, I want to know I want to know every dirty little secret. And um, she says, why? And he says, because it will make it easier to hate you. Right. right. And, and that's sort of the, the question at the center of the story. If you knew the worst about the people in your life, if you knew their secrets, um, and you knew the worst things they thought, would you still be able to love them? Mm-hmm. Um, would, you know, would, would it destroy you? What would it do to you to know... Everything that people try to hide about themselves, because everyone does have their own corner of darkness. Yeah. Um, and you know, at some point, at some point, when I was when I was a young guy, you know, um, when I was in my twenties, I read a review of some science fiction movie, and the the critic said a really interesting thing. He said, "This movie doesn't quite succeed, and the reason why is." It isn't about anything except itself. And I, 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 that was like such an enigmatic sentence. And I kind of went over and over in my head, what does that mean? It wasn't about anything except itself. And, and gradually I kind of came to feel like he was telling me something, that this critic had tapped into something important. You know, the science fiction film he was talking about, it was a prequel to a well-known franchise, and it was something like... Um, you know, just trade federations and robots blowing each other off. And it wasn't about anything except, you know, um, laser guns and robots. Right. It didn't ask any interesting questions about um, why people live the lives the way they do. And, and it, didn't, it didn't ask anything like, you know, any of the great sort of almost unanswerable questions people turn to fiction to explore. Um. And, and, you know, one thing I always look for, for in a story is for it to have some kind of internal life, to be about something more than just a ghost or a vampire 
or a devil to ask some kind of interesting question or explore some interesting territory so that it's about something bigger than itself. Um, you know, and, and, and that's very possible to do in fantasy. I mean, every ghost story is a chance to explore the way the past never really goes away. Right. The way the past keeps bleeding into the present. And I think, you know, um, I think any story about the devil is, is the same way, which is, you know, um, um, what happens when all the sequ- when, when all the dirty secrets come out? And what would it be like to be tempted by the things you want most? Well, see, um, I think all the best genre movies, whether it's a sports movie or a sci-fi movie or whatever, they're never actually about the sport. Or the yeah. thing. they're always a larger comment on the good ones anyway. They're a larger comment on the human condition somehow. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, the thing about The Godfather is most people don't come from families where the family business is enforcing your will at the end of a Tommy gun. Um, but a lot, of people, a lot of people know what it's like to be in a family situation like the family yeah. situation that faces the Corleones. Right. You know, a lot of people have had that immigrant experience of carving out a new territory. And a lot of sons of powerful men have had that experience of trying to figure out how to define themselves, how to create their own character and identity um, that's discreet and stands apart from, you know, their, you know, their, their father, who may be a godfather. Right. Were you brought up in, I'm just asking, I'm from Nova Scotia, Are you brought, were you brought up in Bangor, Maine? Yeah, I was. Because I, was. I watched WLBZ, Bangor, Maine. Yeah. (laughs) My my entire time growing up, that was the American sort of cable feed that we got. Wasn't it Dale Duff doing the weather? uh, Yeah, it was. Yeah, Dale Duff doing the weather, yep. And and, uh, do you remember a show? And I'm just, you know, this is completely off topic, but I was thinking about this earlier because I figured you grew up there. Do you remember a show called Dialing for Dollars that was on WLBZ, Bangor, Maine, and it was just a guy and a desk and a phone, and they had a password, so the word would be <laughs> horns. And so he would call, and if you were watching and you said, yes, the word is horns, you could win 25 bucks. But no one was ever watching, and I was obsessed with this show. I used to watch it because it, 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 it would go up from, you know, 25 bucks to... Twenty-seven fifty, and then to thirty bucks, and sometimes they get up to like two thousand dollars before anyone had bothered, before they got anyone that was tuned in and watching it. Uh, maybe I don't think I ever watched that one. I don't think I ever watched that one. But that's one of those. That's one of those like almost like moronic concepts that you could see completely getting someone, you know, completely becoming addicted to. Oh, I was completely into it. Yeah, yeah, it was. The, like, uh, a part of my youth in my summer it was on like at 11 or 11.15. It was only like a 15-minute show, and I used to make sure that I was in front of a TV so I could watch Dialing for Dollars. Well, what I remember watching was what I remember watching was getting up early to watch The Adam West Bat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I remember I remember loving that show. That was an important part of the important part of my life. Later, we had we had one of the first early cable packages that was offered in Maine. Yeah. And we had Nickelodeon, and I remember watching the Tomorrow People. Right. Um, on Nickelodeon, which was a British import, and I, I loved that show. And a part of me kind of wants to watch it with my kids, but another part of me is kind of afraid to, right. because I think that the effects might be so, you know, cheesy and and terrible. I, I don't know, if, you know, are they just be on the floor laughing hysterics? This is the the first. Uh, you, there's a couple of shorts and things that are in this. The first feature film was the experience. Uh, that's been made for one of your novels, was the experience what you thought it was going to be and hoped it was going to be? 
Oh, it's a blast. Yeah. It's so cool. Someone, you know, someone, I mean, I don't think it would be cool if I hated the film. Right. Um, I think the film, I think the film is wonderful. I, I think it's, you know, I think it's, it's, it's very David Lynch. Yeah. It has a very David Lynchian feel to it. And, and it does, it has a lot of cross-genre elements. It's, it's funny. It has romance in it. It has, you know, it has a tragic aspect. It has a horror movie aspect to it. Um, you know, someone asked me when I was in Toronto um, for the for the premiere. Someone said, "What genre is this?" And I said, "A tragic comedy horror." <laughs> um, you know, you know, and all that makes it all that makes it a little bit of a tough sell. Right. Because it's like, you know, it's easy to market a horror film like Oculus, which is great. Oculus is a great picture, but Oculus only does one thing. Right. It, it's all about scaring you for, you know, an hour and 25 minutes. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's, there's a new Nicholas Sparks film out today. Right. You know, and that's, that's we know what that's going to do. You know, it's going to be a three-hanky love story. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, that, that you know, especially... In the decades following sort of the, the, you know, amazing explosion of personal cinema in the 70s, I think in the years since, um, we've seen a sort of homogenization of the films, the mainstream films that are released. That increasingly we see films that only do one thing because those are so much easier to market. Um, But at the same time, you know, with, you know, with the rise of stuff like, you know, um, the programming on Netflix and, you know, shows, you know, cable shows like Breaking Bad and, and, you know, it's clear that there's an adult audience out there that's happy to have an experience that covers a lot of territory that does, that has ambitions and does different things. Um, you know, anyway, all this is by way of saying I'm very proud of our weird book show. I have no idea what the rest of the world is going to make of it, but I think it's a lot of fun. Well, right, well congratulations um, on it. Well, that's it. That's all there is for this episode of The House of Crows. Time for you guys to get out of here. You know, it's creepy enough around here without you people lurking around all over the place. My thanks to George A. Romero, my thanks to Joe Hill, and my thanks to you guys for coming by every week. Be sure to tune in again on Monday. A new episode will go up, and check it out, because you never know who's going to stop by and visit The House of Crows.